from the Jack and Joan Stratter Studio in beautiful CCM at the University of Cincinnati. It's the Dennis Daniel Show. Tonight's guest, WWE Hall of Famer J.J. Dillon, and your announcer, me, Belle Dandy. And now, here's your host. He is the 2011 BearCast Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Mr. Dennis Daniel. Navigate yourself to BearCastRadio.com's greatest talk show segment. I'm talking, of course, of the Dennis Daniel Show. I am your host. I am the 16th season world champion of BearCastRadio.com and the BearCastRadio.com Lifetime Achievement Award winner for 2011, Dennis Daniel. And while this may not be a flair for the gold, give it up once again for my lovely announcer. She is the Fifi to my Ric Flair, Belle Dandy. Anyway, folks, I like to introduce my brother, John Pokemon. You know, he's like the Arn Anderson to my Tully Blanchard. Unfortunately, he could not be here with us tonight, but in his place is a good friend of mine. I've known him since high school. He's a huge wrestling fan. He is the owner of the Heartland Wrestling Alliance here in Cincinnati. Give it up, my good friend, Mr. Chris Ayers. Chris, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, Denny. Thanks for having me. Hey, I wouldn't have anybody else on except for John. And besides, you know a lot about the subject of tonight's interview. Because tonight on the Dennis Daniel Show, we have got none other than professional wrestling legend and WWE Hall of Famer, J.J. Dillon. Now, for those of you who don't know who J.J. Dillon is, J.J. Dillon is possibly best known as one of the greatest wrestling managers of all time. He has competed and worked for both the NWA, WCW, and even the WWE. And he is best known as the leader of possibly one of the greatest factions in professional wrestling. And we're not talking Degeneration X. We're not talking Evolution. We're not even talking the NWO, even though that would be too sweet. I am talking of the original Four Horsemen that consists of Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, Barry Winham, and the 16-time world champion, the limousine-driving, jet-flying, wheeling-dealing, kiss-stealing, Son of a gun! Nature Boy Ric Flair. Did I get that right? Sounded right. Yeah, sounded sound right. But anyway, Chris, what made the Four Horsemen such a big name in professional wrestling? Well, I mean, I think the first thing you have to look at is the biggest thing with them was it wasn't just, uh, you know, one main guy and then three guys trying to make their name. It was four guys that were at the top of their game at one time, all together, you, and you at the, and up until that point you didn't have that. You you normally, like I said, you had like one guy who was 
the big name. And then you had other guys that were with him that they tried to, you know, basically use the guy's name to make their name. So out of necessity, as you figure out with uh, all the history through them, they all had to do one segment. And it was born just like that. Natural chemistry. Most things in wrestling happen because out of nowhere, something needs to be done and it just clicks. Yeah. At the helm of all of that was J.J. Dillon, the brains behind the horseman, the, the jockey of the horseman, if you will. Is that kind of redundant, though, a jockey for a horseman? No, somebody had to navigate that thing. And I would not see anybody else other than J.J. Dillon, who not only had experience in the ring, but is also an accredited manager. He even managed guys like WWE Hall of Famer Abdullah the Butcher, Moondog Maine, and the Mongolian Stomper. And he managed them to multiple championships in the NWA. So here's a guy who knows what he is doing. So at the time, who better to run the Four Horsemen than the guy who, who was like the Bobby Heenan of the NWA? I've got such respect for him because, as many of you know, I want to be a pro wrestling manager myself. And this guy has at least three decades of experience in, in both wrestling and managing. So, what better guy to have on the show than J.J. Dillon? I agree. I'm very excited. This is good. This is pretty cool. Again, like I said, he was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame the night before WrestleMania, and alongside Ric Flair, Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, and Barry Wyndham, the four horsemen took their rightful place in the Hall of Fame. Because we all know they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Because not only did they live up to the hype in the ring, but out of the ring, they were giants. But anyway, let's get down to this. I, I'm, I'm excited. Oh, oh, I've got that natural high going on there. Are you ready, Chris? I can see it in your face. Oh, are you ready? Let's do it. My guest tonight is a professional wrestling icon and best known as the leader of the original Four Horsemen. He has over three decades of wrestling expertise, and hopefully we'll be able to pick some of those from his brain tonight in the interview. So, ladies and gentlemen, and, and I pray that I get this right, I give to you the original man behind the best faction in pro wrestling in history, the leader of the Four Horsemen, WWE Hall of Famer, Mr. James J. Dillon! <laughs> And welcome to the Daniel Show. Dennis and Chris, uh, happy to be on board. I mean, I got you got all the bells and whistles. I got the music in the intro, and uh, I, I listened to the whole thing. And in the beginning, you said possibly one of the greatest, and then by the time you uh, got all wound up, I think you conceded to the fact that we were the uh, the greatest faction ever. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you. Uh, kind of corrected yourself. I've only got one thing to say to you, Mr. Dillon. I'm not worthy! I'm not worthy! I'm not worthy! <laughs> uh, i got to say, this is truly a huge honor. I'm a big wrestling fan, and I don't think I can get any bigger than the man 
who led possibly no no the the greatest. We got we got that right now, Chris. The greatest wrestling faction in the history of the business. And to have you on here, I am just I'm humbled. I, I'm ready to just I'm ready to have a heart attack. I'm ready just to fall over. I'm just I'm shaking. I feel the pure electricity from just from you. It's just amazing that y- you actually want actually offered to be on our show and I just gotta I have to bow because I'm not worthy. Well yeah I I'm a a big believer in uh, the value of education and when I saw that you were on the University of Cincinnati's uh student internet radio network I thought okay this is uh this and not that I'm overly selective with the interviews that I do but that that caught my attention and uh I have uh twins that are currently freshmen uh biomedical engineering majors here in Delaware where I live at the University of Delaware so I'm very in tune with uh, with education and, and how important it is so the fact that you're on that network you, you got some uh, you got some extra points with me before we ever got started oh and I'm sure Bear Cash Radio will love hearing that at the general body meeting next time Mr. Dell this is again again a truly huge honor for someone who has seen so much in the history of professional wrestling, so much developed, so much happened, and of course we'll get into that a little bit later on in the show. So, what got you interested in professional wrestling? Uh, I think is the case with uh, a lot of people that come into the business. Not everybody, but a lot of them. Is I, I started as a fan. I just was uh, a teenager uh, in uh, New Jersey and discovered professional wrestling at a time when it was far different than it is today. Uh, there weren't as many stations on the air to choose from in fact wrestling was only on uh one night live for an hour and a half on thursday nights and i just uh was overwhelmed by the the cast of characters and and back in those days i mean we're we're talking about the middle to late 50s so we're talking about a half century ago but uh there was chief big heart with the with the indian headdress and um Carl von Hess, the, the German with tattoos all over, and Skull Murphy with the with the shaved head, and Dr. Jerry Graham and Eddie Graham that had the bleach blonde hair, and you know nowadays you could you didn't not only have to go to Times Square, I mean you could go to any any main street in in, in this country, and I think you'll see uh, bizarre characters that wouldn't even turn ahead. But half a century ago, uh, they were bigger than life characters, and it just. I just decided very early on that that was my dream and, and that I was going to pursue it. Honestly, I could not see you anywhere else, Mr. Dillon. Just the, what, you, what you've done for pro wrestling, it, it stood the test of time. Everyone who was a wrestling fan, you know, growing up, watching you and, of course, the other horsemen on, whether it was NWA or, or WCW or even, even being inducted into the Hall of Fame, everybody knows who the four horsemen are and what they did for pro wrestling. So, and, and, to, and to be a fan, not knowing that you're going to have an impact on the business, that, that has to be mind-blowing. Well, in the beginning, it was just a matter of uh, chasing my dream and, and wanting to get my foot in the door. Uh, and like you say, no, no idea you know where it was going to go if in fact it was going to happen and uh, i i've often said and it's true that uh i was never blessed with a uh uh a power physique like a hulk hogan or a lex luger or an ultimate warrior or a superstar billy graham and uh you know probably not the most talented but nobody wanted it more than i did or was willing to work any harder than i was and 
then beyond that, you know, being uh, able to overcome, which happens in any endeavor in life, uh, you know, the, the bumps in the road along the way and the disappointments, you know, just being able to persevere. And then uh, a lot of it uh, from that point is uh, luck to a degree, being in the right place at the right time and also having a lot of help along the way from a lot of people. So I had all of those things, and then, uh, you know, these things just unfolded, and it was uh, something that, that built, and, and it was all said and done. As You know, as I look back, I mean, I just I had a storybook career. I, I had a dream and was able to live it. FairChessRadio.com, this is the Dennis Daniels Show. We've got WWE Hall of Famer J.J. Dillon, the leader of the original Four Horsemen of Professional Wrestling on the air. Now, did you have any kind of special training to become a professional wrestler? Um, not really. Uh, I, in fact, uh, hadn't even seen an amateur match uh, in high school in New Jersey. At that point, they didn't have a, an amateur program. I don't know if somebody gotten hurt. Uh, seriously, and and the wrestling program in the state of in the statewide uh, didn't exist. So in high school, uh, I, I played judo, which served me well later on because I was familiar with how how to uh, you know take falls and be able to protect myself from serious injury. And then uh, most of most of everything that I really learned uh, uh, to give me a foundation was learned in the, in the role of a referee where uh, I was the third man in the ring for the era of uh, the great champion Bruno Sammartino and, and refereed many of his major championship matches in major uh, arenas on the East Coast. So being that close to the action, seeing people that were the best in the business at that time and being able at, at the core of it in the ring to kind of feel the emotion of the crowd and how what they did responded to it. Um, I was like a sponge, just uh, uh, taking in all that knowledge that uh, uh, helped me later on. For our fans who don't know, Mr. Dillon got his start as a referee in the then Worldwide Wrestling Federation and, of course, refereed matches with, of course, the great Bruno San Martino. Um, but you made your professional wrestling debut on December 6, 1968, up, up a little bit past Dayton, and it was an attack team attraction between Ron and Chris Dupree, who are known as Hell's Angels. What was going through your mind during your uh, debut match? Well, I, I, I actually, I, the first match, I don't know that I have a copy of it, but somewhere out there in the YouTube universe is uh, copies of a, of a match that I had the, the uh, two days later against the same Hell's Angel with Arnold Skolan, who's a uh, uh, a WWE Hall of Famer uh, as my as my tag partner, or I was his tag partner. Stand corrected. And as you know, as I look back, I mean, it's obvious. Uh, you know, the, all of the giveaways to anybody that's seasoned in anything they do, especially in wrestling, about somebody who's very young, very inexperienced, very nervous. You know, constantly fidgeting with their tights and and adjusting and that kind of thing. So. Uh, I, as I look back, it's hard going back that far to remember exactly what was going through my mind. And I, and I think a lot of it was, well, you know, you have to crawl before you walk, walk before you run, what have you. And this was the, the, the my crawling stage into the world of professional wrestling beyond the the realm of referee, which at, at, a, at a time I thought, well, you know, maybe that's as far as my dream is going to carry me. But uh, the original Sheik who... who promoted throughout Ohio and Michigan had come east for a series of matches with San Martino and just in casual conversation in the dressing room told him that that had been my dream and 
he said, "Well, man, you you come out, you come out, and I'll uh, I'll give you a chance." And I I didn't know you can work for me is I think how he phrased it, and I didn't know if he meant come out there and be a referee because I you know I I was respected as a referee because I had a passion for the business. So a lot of the commission referees were just there as a political favor to somebody uh, and and to get a payday and really not into into the business as such. So. But no, he said, come on out and wrestle. And my first uh, night was there in Dayton, Ohio. And I, I I know without specifically remembering, and again, it was a small studio, just uh, chairs on two sides of the ring. And I think they only had like two rows. And oddly enough, the commentator calling the match was a guy named Ernie Roth, who was better known later on and a Hall of Famer uh, as well, the Grand Wizard. Wow, now, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling—he was—he was truly something else. I, I, didn't he manage Sergeant Slaughter? And he managed, of course, he managed the original Sheik. Uh, that was uh, where he was best known. And then he had a, a series of people, and I think he did manage uh, and manage uh, Slaughter in the WWF later on. Yeah, it must be so cool to have worked for the original Sheik. Uh, I, I bet you, I bet you, if you crossed him, he would have shot a fireball in your eye, or he would have been on your head. <laughs> Uh, I remember sitting in a in an arena in Philadelphia as a fan watching uh, Argentina Rocco, who was a legend going back years before Bruno San Martino. I had a tremendous following; was very loved. He was uh, Italian descent from our from Argentina, and he wrestled the Sheik. And I had an old eight millimeter uh, movie camera. You know, no sound, of course, back in those days. But the Rocco used to use the backbreaker, and he got the Sheik up in the back backbreaker. And before he would submit, all of a sudden, here come this big ball of fire right down across uh, uh, Rocco's face, and he he dropped him, and the Sheik was disqualified. So I, I have very vivid memories of uh, the Sheik and the dreaded fireball. We have to get that on YouTube. We have to get that on YouTube, Chris. We have to. We have to do you still have it? We have to get that on YouTube. People would pay to see that. Boy, I, I, you know, that's a good. I have so much stuff, and I, I put things in a in a footlocker that, uh, unfortunately, I, I don't get in there as often as I should, and actually see what I what I have and what I don't have. But I do have a vivid recollection of uh, actually filming filming that match. I mean, certain things, even as a fan, way back talking about, you know, half a century ago, just I was so into the business at that time that something like that was is just burned in my memory. Yeah, and we're talking with Chris here. He runs the Heartland Wrestling Alliance, which is a small wrestling organization here in Cincinnati. And Chris, I bet you um, record your fair share of uh, of uh, memorable moments. You don't really know they're memorable at the time. That's the, the funniest part about it. I'm sure uh, that uh, Mr. Dillon agrees that at the time it's just it's just experiences. You know, you go through, it happens, you don't really think about it, and then a few years later somebody throws it off and says, hey, you remember that one time? And then that's, you know, when it becomes. And there's also plenty of times where you don't record it and it becomes a memory and you you really kick yourself for it. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And I, uh, even though the run of the horseman was almost a quarter century ago, um, you know, we were uh, leaders in, in, in innovative approaches to everything. The, the scene that we taped where we assaulted Dusty roads in the parking lot. I still have fans to this day that uh, uh, that talk about that and the impact that it had at that time. Um, paid dividends for 
direct dividends for for almost a year, and and people still still remember that today. Of course, you you traveled around the, the globe, of course, wrestling, and you even spent a small amount of time wrestling in Japan in 1974. When we interviewed the World Warrior Loki on our show last year, he talked about wrestling being a highly respected event in many of their bigger venues, like the Tokyo Dome. Uh, what was it like to compete in front of a Japanese crowd as compared to what it would be like today? Well, it was very different because the the Japanese culture is one of uh, being very reserved. Uh, you didn't have the the intensity in the crowd with them cheering and and really getting emotionally involved in a match. The the Japanese would sit there and very at the end of a very good match they would politely applaud. So it, that was a little bit of a uh, departure from what I was was accustomed to, but as as Low Key said, and it's true, if you were a professional wrestler and you wrestled in Japan and were at the level to be over there on a tour, um, you commanded respect, and that was a, you know, that was that was a good thing, and that was that was, when I originally started in the business and and realized that I finally had made that first step, I then remember three criteria that I thought well before I will ever actually, in my own mind, say that I made it in the business, three things that have to happen. Number one was touring Japan, because all of the greats uh, did, did go to Japan. And at that time, uh, the, the original uh, person who brought professional wrestling to Japan was a, a guy named Ricky Dozan, who was part Korean, part Japanese, and he brought the early Americans over there and... Um, wrestled the, the, the sensational destroyer in a, in a live match that's that held records for viewership for I, I, the rating was phenomenal i think virtually everybody in japan watched it for for a, a one hour what was <laughs> a legitimate fight uh it seemed between the two of them but i i thought i i i, I need to go to japan and and at that point uh, giant baba had uh, all japan pro wrestling and the great Inoki had new japan and i um, ended up working for the Funks in um, Amarillo, West Texas Territory, and they they had a working agreement with Baba to to furnish talent. So that's how I was able to get over there on my first tour in in, uh, in 1974. I went for six weeks, but again, you know, you talk about dreams, uh, and I have I I know I have some black and white footage uh, uh, that I shot. Of the of the first tour that I went over, you know, as we were riding on the bullet train, and I was in all of Mount Fuji, of just all of the things that that were so different over there with the Japanese culture. And on that tour, I've got a shot in my mind, standing on a train platform waiting for the the bullet train to come in. And on that tour was uh, uh, Dory Funk Jr., who was the reigning world champion at that time, Terry Funk, his brother, Harley Race. Jack Briscoe, Jerry Briscoe, all on the same tour, and I was there with him. So you talk about uh, a goosebump moment where you pinch yourself and say, "Is this is this really happening?" Uh, when you look back at the history of our profession, uh, and you talk about the who's who, every one of those names is on that list. And on the other side, of course, Giant Baba had come to America when I was a kid, and I'd seen him in Madison Square Garden, and on the tour, dressing on the Japanese side was uh, the destroyer, Dick Byer, who was uh, like a, a god over there as well. 
We have to find that footage, Chris. We did, we, we got to find that footage. That's some great crackjack footage. We need to share with the others. It, it, it must be truly that amazing. I mean, before he said it, I was going to say, it sounds like a who's who's train. That was one step, and the other was to go to Australia because uh, the, the, that was another hotbed uh, internationally. Uh, and then the third thing, of course, was uh, as, a, as a kid, I had gone to Madison Square Garden, and there may be larger arenas, uh, newer arenas, fancier arenas, but if you say to any wrestling fan, if you just say Doug Garden, and there is a Boston Garden, there's a Cincinnati Garden, uh, there's gardens uh, in in other places, but when you say the garden to the wrestling fan, everybody knows instantly what you're talking about. Of course, you're talking about Madison Square Garden, and so that was the 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 last step. That if I someday could be wrestling in Madison Square Garden, then okay. If I've been to Japan, been to Australia, and and appeared in Madison Square Garden, okay, I've I've. I've checked off my bucket list, if you want to call it that, and, and I can, in my own mind, say that, hey, I made a name for myself in the business. Yeah. Well, speaking of Madison Square Garden, that actually leads us into our next question. We have down here, you know, on when you made your garden debut, you wrestled Tito Santana. What was it like, one, competing in the garden for the first time, and two, knowing that you were in there with uh, such a high-caliber athlete like uh, Tito Santana? At that time, I was uh, kind of late in my career. We're talking about 1984, so you can do the math and figure. And I and I started full time in the profession as a wrestler in 1971, and I wrestled full time before I ever managed for almost five years. And unless you're a historian of the business and and or have read my autobiography. Um, you probably wouldn't know that I had over 3,200 and some professional matches in my career, even though I'm best remembered as the leader of the Four Horsemen. But uh, I, late in my career, was working in the office in Florida for Eddie Graham, again, going back to Dr. Jerry and Eddie Graham. And Eddie was, uh, I think, my mentor, probably someone who had more influence on me in terms of the psychology of, uh, of, of how a wrestling match should unfold, and uh, in terms of physical toughness, uh, there wasn't anybody tougher than Eddie Graham. And he had maybe uh, a seventh grade education, but he was uh, a genius in terms of psychology and 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 what have you. But in a casual conversation with him, um, and I don't even remember how it came up, but it was like, well, you know, I I'd seen. Eddie, as a kid in the Garden in New York, and it was my dream maybe someday to say that I could wrestle there too. And now here I was in Florida, kind of late in my career. And at that point, I'm, what, I'd be 40, 42 years old, uh, having started at, at months after my 29th birthday full-time. And the likelihood of me getting to Madison Square Garden seemed very remote at that point. And... Eddie told me that uh, he said, why don't I give Vince McMahon a call? And I said, hey, I can't. I couldn't ask you to do that. And he, he kind of laughed and never said anything else. Well, Vince McMahon Sr. was uh, very, very beloved and respected throughout the wrestling industry. He was really a true gentleman and a wonderful human being. And he contracted, uh, he was a heavy smoker and had lung cancer and uh, was not doing well at that point. And his son had basically 
stepped up, Vince Jr., and was, um, you know, making his mark, but that hadn't really fully happened yet. And uh, a day or two went by, and I went into the office in Florida, and, and Eddie said, you know, whatever the date was, uh, April 23rd, he said, you're booked in the garden. He said, uh, uh, they're going to fly you up from here, and uh, you'll have your match and fly you back. And, oh, gee, I just, uh, I was at a, like a, at a loss for words, uh, that this was like the last piece of the puzzle of my dream coming true. And I had said that I wanted to call Vince Sr. and thank him, which I did. And he was always very kind to me when I started as a referee. I was in college at the time, and really a nobody. Uh, and he knew me on a uh, my-name basis to talk to me and always said hello and always was very gracious to me and and uh, was very kind on the phone and said that I'm, I'm very happy to be able to do this for you. And as it worked out, there were a lot of wrestlers who used to get booked as kind of a political favor, like... You know, when the Von Erichs wanted to, to expand out of Texas and, and make a national name for himself, a lot of the stars, and from Japan as well, would get booked so that they could say, well, they wrestled in Madison Square Garden and kind of added to their, their resume. And I didn't realize it two years later, but uh, I was actually the last person to come in as what might be called a quote-unquote political failure or, or favor, because after that... Um, the, the feelings between Vince McMahon Jr. and the rest of the wrestling community became very hostile because he was going everywhere and, and taking over everybody's TV and the old uh, kind of like boundaries of the regional territories that everybody respected for years were now erased because cable television changed all that. And Vince was the first one to go with uh, a national show and he he put his television program in, in every individual market and and paid for it where it used to be a barter deal and didn't cost the local promoter anything other than production cost. And so anyway, I was the last person to come in as, as a favor. So when you talk about, again, a storybook career, uh, it, it, I just was incredibly lucky and just amazing uh, the good fortune that I had. So I, I guess one thing that should be on every pro wrestler's or even a wrestling fan bucket list is to at least, is to go to the garden for a wrestler is to compete at the garden absolutely and i have uh uh i the program was sold out and someone gave me a copy of the the program insert that i was able to make a make a copy of and and you know we've lost so many of the great talent over the years but i i have it framed here on a wall with a picture of, of Tito and I. And actually that night I just was on the card. If you looked at the original program, uh, Tito was due to defend the Intercontinental title against one of the, one of the uh, Samoans. And that night, because of the Garden Network, and here I was coming in from another territory, and you know, it could be a sacrificial lamb, so to speak, for Tito Santana for the Garden Network without having to, to sacrifice one of the Samoans. So the main event that night was uh, Sergeant Slaughter that you mentioned earlier against the Iron Sheik. And Greg the Hammer Valentine faced uh, Bob Backlund. And then I was in an intercontinental uh, title match against Tito Santana. And there was a great six-man on the card, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Paul Orndorff, Mr. Wonderful, and Dr. D. David Schultz against USA Tony Atlas, Rocky Johnson, who's the father of The Rock, and Polish power Ivan Putsky. 
uh, and Wendy Richter was there that night. So I've I've had everybody that was there autograph uh, that program insert, and I have it framed on the wall, and that's one of my treasured possessions. That's got to be worth at least what five grand? Five grand? That's got to <laughs> be. It's priceless to me. It, it might not be worth a whole lot to somebody else, but just the fact that everybody's still here and uh, the, you know that I was able to, to get it signed and just to, to preserve that memory and, and also because the the Garden Network was recording all the events uh, at that time, which the Garden Network then ceased to exist. So there was actually. Uh, uh, again, you can go to YouTube and find a, a, a copy of that match that was, uh, I think, uh, eight or nine minutes long, and the commentary was uh, uh, Pat Patterson and I want to say Gorilla Monsoon, and they talked about everything but the match because to, to the fans of the traditional Garden Network, uh, coming from Florida like that for one shot, I was not a, a, ho- a household word, uh, a household name as, as I was fortunate to become later on. So I, I have copies of that match of the only time I ever appeared in the garden. Hey, don't be ashamed of, uh, of treasuring that autograph page, Mr. Dillon. Uh, you want to talk about fandom. This guy next to me, he, he's got to be the craziest guy I ever know. Tell him, Chris, what you did to show your true love for pro wrestling. I'm not quite sure which one you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about. T- talking about when you met Hulk Hogan. Oh, um... I was lucky enough uh, last year to meet uh, Hulk Hogan for the first time in my 23, 24 years of fandom. And uh, I had him autograph my leg, and I went and got it tattooed. So he now has... <laughs> wow, that's that's the ultimate tribute. He now has the tattoo autographed on his right leg. Wow. He won't, he won't be the only one if I... Uh, if I have my ways. I he mean, won't be the only one on there. When you're in the profession, I guess it's kind of like anything else. Uh, and you're doing business with these legends on a day-to-day basis, you, you you don't think of the significance of that that moment. And I didn't save a lot of things for over the years or, or get a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of candid photos for my own use. But I, I have one picture up here. The, the WWF did a, a, a venture in Japan that was kind of laying the foundation for them eventually going over there on a regular basis. And I'm in a in a memorabilia store with a bunch of Japanese people who I I don't know who they are, but uh, in the picture are Earthquake John Tenta, who has passed away, of course, Hulk Hogan in the middle, and off to the right is the Macho Man Randy Savage, and all three of them uh, uh, autographed that picture for me. And that's, again, another one of my uh, prized possessions. And, And I have mounted over here three pictures. One I have that was that I had taken with Bruno Sammartino that he personalized and signed for me. I have another one with Hulk Hogan that he personalized and signed for me, and, of course, one with the Nature Boy. So three of the greatest champions in the history of our profession, uh, side by side by side. So uh, I later on, uh, you know, learned that uh, when when you have a moment, I've got a picture here with uh, Roddy Piper, who was uh, someone I was very close to over the years, and, uh, just that cauliflower alley a couple of years ago, you know, Stone Cold came back and had a uh, impromptu picture taken with him, and then uh, a year later went back and he came again and had him sign it. And so I've got some, uh, I got some great memories preserved here. Part of me was I I think I'm going to go cry tears of awesomeness. <laughs> oh gosh, that is so awesome. 
BearcatsRadio.com. This is the Nathaniel Show. We've got J.J. Dillon, the original leader of the Four Horsemen of Professional Wrestling. You would later go on from wrestling to managing, winning Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Manager of the Year three times, once in 82, once in 83, and once in 88. And you managed several champions to multiple titles, including WWE Hall of Famer Abdullah the Butcher, Moondog Maine, and the Mongolian Stomper. What was the transition from wrestler to manager like, and do you prefer one over the other? Wow, that's a great question. I actually, the, uh, the I'm looking at the plaques. I still have them after all these years. And also in 1988, there was another major publication called the uh, the main event that uh, picked the manager of the year, George Napolitano, who took pictures and uh, was very active. And you still see George come around. Uh, they they as well named me manager of the year in 1988. But I, uh, as I said, I, I started as a as a, a wrestler and. I met the Mongolian Stomper up in the Canadian Maritimes where I got got my first break in the summer of uh, around 73. And then I, from there I went to Amarillo for a year, which is where I, I, I made two tours of Japan. And from there I went, uh, went to Florida, which is you know where I had always wanted to go just to work for Eddie Graham. And when I got to Florida, the Mongolian Stomper was, uh, was working there. So I had a chance to wrestle him. Uh, in Florida, we had actually been tag partners a few times, and uh, I had a run there as a Florida tag team champion with Roger Kirby, and also I was a Florida heavyweight champion, having taken the title from uh, Mr. Wrestling 2 and then later uh, lost lost it back to him. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to hold some, uh, uh, some major regional titles, but <clears throat> that year... Uh, uh, the Stomper left and went to Tennessee with Bearcat Wright, who was uh, uh, another legendary name, and Bearcat was going to be his manager. And I guess it was two very strong personalities, and, and it was not a match made in heaven. It didn't last very long. And I, uh, in 1975, just got a call out of the blue from uh, from Stomper and told me that things hadn't gone well with uh, Bearcat after he left Florida and <clears throat> that he needed to make a move from Tennessee and that there was a... Uh, uh, a main event spot open in Dallas and that he wanted to go but needed a manager and asked me if I'd ever given any thought to managing, which I hadn't. And he said, well, it's a top spot. And, I, and you know, he had heard my, my interviews and from the Canadian Maritimes and from Florida, and I, he said, I just I think you'd make a great manager and we'd make a good combination. And so I... You know, one, they say how you know one door closes behind you as another opens in front of you, and <clears throat> that's kind of what it was. And it was a, a smooth transition for me in that, again, as I said earlier, I was not blessed with this powerful physique. My my greatest strength, I think, always was my interviews, and so it was a natural thing if, uh, as a manager, to to be the spokesperson for somebody to be doing something that. Uh, focused on my my greatest strengths so that opened the door for me to uh to managing and uh, never look back from there let me, let me just go ahead and if it's okay with you i'd like to read some of your accomplishments as a pro wrestler just so we can give the audience a perspective uh 
Central States Wrestling, the NWA Central States Tag Team Champion, one time with Buzz Tyler. The Championship Wrestling from Florida, the NWA Florida Heavyweight Championship, the NWA Florida Tag Team Championship with Roger Kirby, the NWA Florida Television Championship from the Eastern Sports Association, the ESA International Heavyweight Champion, the ESA International Tag Team Champion, one time with Freddie Sotan, the ESA North American Heavyweight Champion, the NWA Western States, the NWA International Heavyweight Championship, our medial version, one time, the NWA Western States Television Championship. You were the NWA Macon Heavyweight Champion. Macon. I was, I was the city champion in Macon. Macon. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's down towards the bottom of the list of, uh, uh, of significant accomplishments. But, uh, you know, obviously you've done your homework. And the, the, the thing is that uh, it, it's kind of like a, a snowball effect. Uh, because I was uh, a fan... When I when I got an opportunity that was just it was a, a chance thing, uh, where I was going down to Philadelphia to help uh, while I was in college with a guy that actually set the ring up for a weekly studio show, and they had a, a terrible blizzard hit there one night, and, and none of the commission referees showed up, and they had enough wrestlers to to tape the hour of programming. I think it was like on a <clears throat> Wednesday night that aired on Saturday, and looking for a referee, and they all looked at me and they said, you know, can you referee? And I went, oh, yes, and so. That was my few moments of fame. I was the only referee for that hour and did a good job. And they said, well, you should be doing this all the time. You're very good. So the fact that I was a fan enabled me to be the best referee that I could and then eventually elevated myself to to being for in the ring for many of Bruno's championship matches. And, again, that was a, a wealth of knowledge that once I you know, actually had my chance to wrestle – uh, I, I had all of that knowledge to fall back on, and and then I was, uh, you know, I was a heel, I was a babyface, I, I was in the opening matches, uh, moved up the card. So when I became a manager, I had this wealth of information and wealth of experience to fall back on. So as a fan, it made me a better referee. As a referee, it made me a better wrestler. As a wrestler, it made me a better manager. And uh, like I said. A lot of it from that point was being the right place at the right time, having some luck, and having a lot of wonderful people. <clears throat> and, uh, and to start listing the names uh, would would be near impossible. But starting with Bruno Sammartino and you know just going right down the line of all the people in the original Sheik that uh, and Eddie Graham that uh, that helped me. It just uh, it, that was the nice thing about doing my book. I was I was originally approached by Scott Teal, who had done Ole Anderson's autobiography. And a mutual friend introduced us, and, and he asked me about, you know, writing my life story. And at that point, I, <clears throat> which is typical in the wrestling business, had gone through my third divorce, and um, WCW had gone out of business, and for all practical purposes, my active wrestling career was over. And and I didn't give any thought to, you know, writing a book. And I had children uh, when I was working in the front offices of the WWE late in life. I had twins when I was 50, and I had a uh, another uh, daughter two years after that. And they came into the world after I had retired from the ring. And so I thought, you know, if I could talk about my whole journey from day one and, and all these things that have happened to me and all the people that helped me, it would be great to do not not to make money because I don't know that you can make money writing a book, but just to be able to document it all so that uh, as time passed that my children could always look back and have a, uh, you know an understanding of what I did for so much of my adult life. So that's how 
the book came about. I'm very proud of it. Uh, not available in bookstores. you got to go to jjdillon.com. And it was published by Scott Teal, my co-author, who has the Crowbar Press. And he's done a, other, a lot of other books. Uh, after Ole and mine, he did uh, Stan Hansen and Ivan Koloff and uh, Tony Atlas. But he's a, a very respected historian. He's a great author. And basically took my life story and put it to print in a, in a way that's a, a great read. And, and because my career was so lengthy, uh, 40-some years spanning five decades, that it's kind of like the history of modern wrestling with all the changes from the territory days to how cable television impacted everything to how it came down to basically uh, you know Vince McMahon and what was then the WWF to uh, Ted Turner's WCW and then eventually you know they fell by the wayside and from the unique perspective of someone that was behind the scenes on the inside through all this so it's a it's a great history lesson it's also a history one-on-one or, or a wrestling one-on-one of how the business was structured and even if you're not a wrestling fan it's a feel-good story about a kid that had a dream and 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 was able to live that dream. It's wrestlers are like seagulls from McMahon to McMahon, and it's the personalized story of one of wrestling's greatest managing personalities. And if you go to jjdillon.com, which we will link to on the Altus Explosion website, you can actually get an autographed copy with a special message from you, Mr. Dillon, at no extra charge. Yeah, it started out uh, when the book was first published uh, that I wanted to uh, kind of show my appreciation since the decision was made to uh, do a limited printing. It's a hardback book. It's like 360-some pages with tons of pictures. And uh, just the people that went to the trouble to, to get it and at some of the appearances I early on would have it available. And I just uh, started out signing copies and there's a unique message the, the way that I sign it. And, of course, I've recently added uh, WWE Hall of Fame 2012 uh, uh, at, at the bottom of that as well. But uh, it started as a temporary thing, and it just is something that I've continued to do to this day. So it was published in 2005, so here we are, 2012. And anybody that goes to the trouble, and and this is not about selling books, but if you go on there, you can, you know, find out what the chapter headings are about and, and some of the information. But if you just go to uh, uh, the comments of people who, who have gotten the book, and it's people in the business, it's people who are historians, it's fans, it's, uh, you know, the people that take the time to get the book, read it, and then share their, uh, you know, their, you know what, what their thoughts are. And I think that does more... Uh, to tell you what the book is all about than if we, you know, talked about it for an hour, which, of course, I'm not going to do. So, so, wait, wait. So you're telling me not only can I get an awesome book about what it was like behind the scenes with the four horsemen working with WCW and your career, I can also get it autographed all of this for twenty four ninety five. Yeah, absolutely. We rounded off to $25, so I guess maybe the signature costs you a nickel if you want to look at it that way. But it, it's... Uh, and I've told people, I said, you know, if you get the book and if you get it and feel that it wasn't worth $25, send it back and I'll buy it back from you. And I think the original publish, uh, publication was a little over 3,000 copies, and I think there may be, 
might be five, six hundred left at this point, and nobody's sent me their copy back yet. So I think that that says a lot about uh, how well it's been received for those that have gotten it. I, and uh, I recently did an interview uh, with all the publicity about the, the Hall of Fame. Uh, I had someone in Italy that had a website that sent me questions and then translated them into Italian and and sent me uh, sent me the copy. It, it makes me look very brilliant because it's all in Italian and uh but I just received uh, the first Italy, uh, first order from Italy of uh, somebody who wanted the book personalized to them and as a lifetime horseman fan. Well, Mr. Dillon, if you find someone that decides to send it back and want their money back, you call me and I will fly over there and I will kick that guy square in the nuts. <laughs> I, I, I will not. Let me repeat that. Let me repeat that, Chris. I will not. Let someone return that book after this man, who has been in the business for over four decades, decide to give back because it wasn't worth his money. I'll give him a punch in the nose. That'll be worth 25 bucks. You know, and like I say in the beginning, my, my motive was to create a, a uh, you know, a, a story of my life to pass on to my children. And, and I have been very pleasantly surprised that people who from all over the world who uh you know people all throughout europe uh, japan virtually every state in the united states uh throughout canada and it's amazing how someone will read the book and there's something in there because there's like a chapter about how i got my break in the maritimes and i remember somebody up there that remembered me uh as a young kid during that time and and how you know that still stuck in their mind those memories and so the people that write that uh, share their thoughts with me it's been very gratifying and that was something that i never thought about when i first wrote the book and just the fact that uh you know as you get older and you you often say to yourself well you know what the, what did i you know what did i do productive with with my life and in the wrestling business uh you know you're in many ways an entertainer and you think wow you know what did i, I you know i certainly didn't uh, discover the cure for cancer and i you know i was not uh, uh, a statesman or you know and 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 yet the messages that and the feedback that i've gotten of how i touch people's lives it really gave me a sense uh, that what i did uh, you know had meaning that if uh, after all these years that uh, they have these memories and share with me their thoughts uh and really as i look back again a storybook career but something that was uh you know very very worthwhile to a lot of people to bring some joy because i don't care what area you go i mean right now these are tough times uh, economic and uh, a lot of people out of work and uh and there were i mean some of the best times for wrestling were back during the depression days because people have always needed an escape from their day-to-day problems and wrestling was uh it was the basic it's a confrontation man on man you know without uh you know helmets and shoulder pads i mean they're they're out there one-on-one and of course professional wrestling is unique because of uh the stories that we tell and and the raw emotions and yes there's violence but it's a controlled violence and uh it's just all the things that drew me as a fan when i was a kid are still what I love about professional wrestling. And to, to have done that and touched people's lives, too, 
you know, that was a, a part that just gave it added meaning to me. I mean, that's one of those things where, you know, they're sitting here, I'm listening along, and, uh, you know, they hear that your story from being a fan to being in the business, it's, it's kind of, you know, I've nowhere even close or will ever come close to what you've achieved. Um, but uh, to hear that, you know, it's kind of a similar story of fandom to, uh, you know, doing whatever you can to get in. Uh, so it, it, it this really kind of touches home to me. When I when my book first came out, and and you can probably relate to this too, because it's like when you first break into the business, you don't make a big point in the locker room of, of saying, "Hey, I was a fan." You know, I sat. You know, many of the guys that I wrestled in those early years, uh, you know, Haystacks, Calhoun, and Bobo Brazil, and the Sheik, and Hans Schmidt, and uh, and Wild Bull Curry, and just going down the names. These were these were people that that I watched on television and then you know was in the ring as a referee and, and then had a chance to wrestle them and it's like you know you're you're so thrilled that you finally made it to that level that a lot of times in in the in the dressing room people have no idea of the individual background of the other people that are sitting there and it was only after my book was published and one of the early messages that I got was from uh, uh, Paul Bear, who was Percy Pringle before that, and his name is Bill Moody, and uh, a great success story as a manager. But he said, "I I got you. I read your story," and he said, "I was um, amazed at the at the similarities of how we broke into the business and of our backgrounds." And he said, "I never knew that," and his was uh, much like that too. So. Chris, there's a lot of people who got into the business that are in the dressing room that if you knew the history of everybody sitting there, you might be amazed how uh, a lot of guys, uh, you know, got started. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, that's the one thing is, you know, you're, you're always learning from people. Uh, my good friend Dennis here has made no secret about it, that uh, he would love to be one day a professional wrestling manager, and I, I've I've dabbled a little bit in it. He's asked me time and time again, and uh, I think this is the perfect time. I think we found the person, Dennis. We found the person that you can ask, what are the secrets and any advice that you can give to my friend Dennis on how to do this? Well, I, I think the advice would be the same as anybody who wants to even you know, start a career in wrestling. That the, the Unfortunately, the opportunities... In terms of number of opportunities are are few compared to when I broke into the business, but for those that persevere and make it, also the rewards are uh, the monetary rewards, particularly, and the fact that uh, you know if you're on top now with the WWE, you're you're truly part of an international brand that goes everywhere in the world. I mean, they're in South America now. Um, it it just but. From a managerial perspective, it's changed. I mean, everything changes in in, in life, and wrestling is no different. And not necessarily is all is, is all changed necessarily for the good, but change is inevitable in everything, wrestling included. And back when I started, you 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 would don't, nowadays don't have the bizarre characters that existed when I broke in. The Sheik being one, Abdullah the Butcher being another, the Stomper being another. There was a 
mystique of these guys, just this uh, this mental picture that was created by seeing them uh, on your screen or seeing them live in your arena without ever hearing from them. And you didn't know if inside there was some kind of a wild man or what. And so it was the perfect role to have a manager to be the spokesperson and to facilitate the telling of the stories and the, and the different things that happen. Nowadays, uh, they don't ex- they don't exist anymore. And yet, when you think that it's all over and the, and the opportunity for a good manager uh, doesn't exist anymore, just look what happened. What's happened with Brock Lesnar? He's come in and 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 made a huge name for himself, and he's going to have a phenomenal run, I'm sure, for a year or two. And the the situation is such that contractually they have limited dates that they could use him and who emerges but Paulie Dangerously, Paul Heyman, who's one of the great minds in our business and a great manager, who now steps forward as his manager and spokesperson for him. So here in the year two thousand and twelve is a perfect role for the wrestling manager and and, uh, and there's nobody that, that will do it any better than he will. Uh, Paulie. Oh gosh. That is kind of daunting, but I think, and this might be just that that young, pretentious crap talking, Mr. Dillon, but I think I have what it takes to bring nobility and respect back to the managerial position in professional wrestling. I mean, look at the competition besides Paul Heyman. No, no offense to Paul Heyman, but you got you got Vicky Guerrero, who, who screams half of her stuff all the time. She manages two... Two mid-carters like Dolph Ziggler and Jack Swagger, which, you know, they have all the potential in the world, but they, 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 they don't utilize Vicky properly. Sure, she's, sure she, she goes, excuse me! But that's, that's what, what else is there besides that? There's nothing. You know, yeah, that's, the, that's the fingernails on the chalkboard that just, you know, goes up one side of you and down the other. I mean, with Bobby Heenan, at least he got involved. He would pick up the, the, his guy's foot and put it on the rope and point to it before the ref got to the three count. He would he would blo- he would smack a wrestler. Vicky just all she does is just go out there and talk and and and, and nothing. There is no essence. At least with guys like Jimmy Hart and Mister Fuji, they got a weapon involved to give their guys wins. All you see her is just screaming, and even that's getting repetitive. So I think if I can find the right gimmick, I could bring some nobility and respect and popularity back to the managerial position in professional wrestling. Hey, chase, chase your dream. Uh, and, and you have brought up you know, the name of Bobby the Brain Heenan, and, and I will, will say with all humility that uh, – he's the greatest manager that ever lived, and he's the one that set the bar by which all the rest of us are are measured. And uh, Bobby could do it all. He was, uh, and and that's the thing about managing, too. Everybody's style was different. You know, Bobby's style was was one way. My style was different. Uh, Paul Ellering was different. You know, out to South, Jimmy Hart, you know, Freddie Blast. You look at all the managers, you know, there, there is no, there is no cookie-cutter way of saying this is what a manager should do, this is what he should look like, this is how he should act. And each of the names, uh, and Playboy Gary Hart that we've lost and Sir Oliver Humperdinck, you know, they were all very, 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 very successful managers and and um, and yet very individual in their own style and their own presentation. And just uh, you have to come up with something that, that 
and again, it's the right chemistry with the, with the right wrestling talent, and then you've got to be someone who is, which you're, someone that a character who, whatever your presentation is, that you're personally comfortable with, whether it's an extension of your true personality or whether it's a, a, a character that you live vicariously through, whatever it happens to be. But you know, it's. Uh, like I say, with Paul Hannon, you just you know you would have thought the role of the wrestling manager is dead, and here it is. It's suddenly been revived, and and as my career shows, anything anything in this business is possible. Yes, I don't think anyone can top Bobby Keenan, Mister Dillon. And of course, no offense to you, but the guy just he had a hit a, a viper like tongue. It was just so amazing. I think one of my favorite lines from him was, "A friend in need is a pest." <laughs> I love that line so much. <laughs> he didn't even say that in wrestling, but that was just so funny. He has just this he has this, this wit about him that's yeah. un- And when he when he and Gorilla Monsoon were, were, were commentators, to to me they were one of the greatest combinations you know, that that ever was. They they complimented each other beautifully and uh and Bobby has had uh some terrible health issues. Uh I, I saw him a couple times within the last year, um, he's not—he's hardly able to speak anymore, and and has had you know cancer has ravished uh, ravaged his his body. But that twinkle in the eye is still there, and that sense of humor is still there. And uh, it's you know every time that I get a chance to see Bobby, it's a treasured moment. We would love to have Bobby Heenan on the show. Of course, it wouldn't be a very long interview, but still, just to be able to talk with one of the greats out there, it's, it would be truly amazing. I don't care what it would take. I would kill. I would cut my left arm off just to be able to talk to Bobby Heenan because the guy is, oh, gosh, I, I think I share so much in common with him. I know I could talk a 1,000 miles a day. I could talk all on and on and on and on about myself, be a narcissistic SOB, and I don't care because Bobby Heenan made that cool one of the greatest compliments that uh that i ever with nick bockwinkle who was you know very very respected he was awa champion and he had a, a tremendous run up in the minneapolis territory with uh, uh with ray stevens as a tag team combination and they were managed by bobby heenan and and if there was a situation where one of them had an injury or something happened and couldn't be there uh, Nick told me that Bobby was so talented that he could step in there as a replacement for either of them on any given night and deliver in the ring with the fans that they would never skip a beat and the fans would, would, would never be disappointed. He he was so talented in so many areas on, on so many levels and just, uh, I, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't say enough and uh, it was a number of years since I saw Bobby, and I, you know, I was familiar with all that he'd been through with his health issues. And uh, he was in Charlotte uh, a year ago when I saw him for the first time in years uh, at one of the the fan festivals that Greg Price has. And when I I, I had heard that Bobby, because a lot of times something happens and and he's not able to get his flight, not able to be there. And I was told, you know, Bobby is here. He's in that next room. And I was remembering trying to collect my thoughts that. You know what am I going to say to him? You know how? You know he he's been through hell, and you know what what do you say? Oh, Bobby, you look great. You know, or I, you know, what do you say to somebody who's been through what he's been through for somebody that that's that the best at what you do? And I remember uh, 
I, the room was full of people, and I looked, and I made eye contact with Bobby from halfway across the room, and the joy that that I was anticipating, I looked into his face, and his eyes lit up, and he waved like a young kid, come over here, come over here, come over here, and he stood up, and he hugged me, and it's like, oh, my God, it's just, ah. Uh, uh. Uh, and I sat there, and and sometimes it's very difficult to to understand him because uh, um, he, he can't speak for. But Cindy, his wife, was there with him, and of course she's with him every day, and is able to immediately understand what he's trying to say. And a lot of times she'll say, "What well, Bobby's saying," and you know, and it's and so, you know, I was able to sit there and and have a a wonderful conversation with him. It was so good to see him, and it just is uh, the fact that. You know all the adversity that he's been through. That uh, and he's got a couple grandchildren. I think that's a big part of what you know what keeps him going is the love for his grandchildren. But he, you know, you look at him and and uh, he, he he had a picture in his wallet and he said uh, his wife said he wants to show you the picture. He's got a picture in his wallet, his pride and joy. And I'm thinking, oh, he's going to show out to show me one of his grandchildren. He pulled out a picture and it was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a can of pride and a thing of joy dishwasher detergent you know and bobby laughed and and so you know he just uh he's never lost that sense of humor oh my gosh again you know truly i find that ironic that he was gifted with the gift of gab only to have it taken away with this, with, with these with throat cancer and, but yeah. still the bobby Keenan still has that thing that he had 30 years ago that is truly a testament to that wrestling does keep us young at heart and young in mind. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just to, just to hear the story, you know, as you were telling it, to hear the emotion in your voice, you can see how much it means, you know, that there's that connection there from the, the long roads and everybody has their story, uh, you know, and Bobby Heenan, also a WWE Hall of Famer. So let's, let's touch on that for a second. Just if you could try and put us... In your mind, on March 31st, when you walked out there, and you were, you know, basically cemented that here is your place. It was already prepared for you. Everybody knew it was coming, but to finally get there, what was that like? Well, it, I, I, in order to really appreciate, you know, the the, the roller coaster of emotions that I went through. Uh, there's a whole chapter in, in my book that's uh, devoted to the time that I spent almost uh, a little over seven and a half years uh, working in the front office after I had walked off camera, and it was you know the job that was offered to me for uh, you know utilizing my organizational skills, my creative uh, uh, side of me, and what have you, to, and not as uh, not as a talent. And because I started late, you know, at that point. Uh, it was a great opportunity. I'd started with Vince's father, so here I was being recruited by um, his son, and it, the place that everybody wanted to be. And here, they're, they're, they've sent an overture to me, and all of the matchmaking, all of the writing of television, the, the pay-per-views. I think there were only five major pay-per-views at that point. Was all being done with Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson and they were looking for help and some people threw my name out there and I was offered a job so when you talk about McMahon to McMahon 
that's the whole spectrum of my, of my career. And I went up there, and like I say, I had children uh, late in life, and Vince is not the easiest guy to, to work with at times. And uh, when I had children, uh, I had to balance my responsibilities in life. And anyway, long story short, and it's documented in my book, uh, I made a personal decision because of uh, s- some factors that I talk about in more detail to resign from what everybody thought was the dream job. I was the, the right-hand man to Vince McMahon. I was vice president of talent relations, which is the job that John Laurinaitis has now. And, and Jim Ross had it before him, and uh, Pat Patterson had it prior prior to me. And I walked in there on a Friday and handed Vince out of the blue with no warning. A letter of recommenda- uh, resignation walked out the door, and Shane, his son, was being married the next day. So you can imagine um, the turmoil that that cost, not knowing if I was a loose cannon what I was going to do. So that is kind of the history of the relationship. I had. I walked out the door and basically, um, for the next ten years anyway, had no 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 contact with Instagram, nothing. And the first uh, hint was after many years when they when they released the uh, Ric Flair with the Four Horsemen DVD and a producer called me and said, you know, we want to tell the story and you were such an integral part of it and, you know, like, would I be willing to do it? And I, absolutely, you know, I, I owed it to the other guys and I owed it to the fans who made us what we were. And so they sent, I was living in Delaware and they sent a, a crew to my home and recorded about six hours worth of stuff and that was part of the Horseman DVD. Uh, another year goes by, and, and I get a call after all those years from Howard Finkel, who I knew very well when I was there, and it was right as Flair and Shawn Michaels were meeting at WrestleMania, what was what looked like it was going to be Flair's final match, and they wanted to have a tribute the next uh, day or all, and they said, would you be willing to come down here? <clears throat> and um, along with Tully, because uh, Barry was already a backstage agent, was which Arn was as well, and this was like a Wednesday before WrestleMania, and I said yes, of course I would, and they said, well, let's it's just talking stages now. So I get a call back the next day, yes, we want you to come down, and so I was actually on a plane when WrestleMania was taking place live, and now I'm in the arena. This is there after all those years, and so you're looking at uh, what that's four years ago, and. And I left there in '96, so you could do the math. And uh, was there all day, and um, it was only uh, about 20 minutes before they went off air, where, where we went out there, and we were the first uh, to be introduced to surprise Vince, uh, to surprise uh, Ric Flair. And there's a very small trailer that you that you go through, where there's monitors, and Vincent's there, and a couple of other agents, and Stephanie was there. And anyway, it's very crowded as all these people were being set up to, to go out. We were the first. And uh, Vince uh, saw Tully, who happened to be right in front of me, stood up, took his headset off, and extended his hand. And I was over Tully's shoulder, and Vince saw me, made eye contact, reached his hand around, and said, J.J., um, uh, thanks for coming. And I said, Vince, thanks for inviting me, and walked out, didn't see him after. So that were, were, were the only words that we had. And then again, um, a year or two went by, 
and they were doing the Legends of uh, Wrestling Roundtable session, and one of the sessions was about managers, and another producer who knew the producer from the original Flair Horseman thing called me and said, boy, you'd be a natural for this. Would you come up to our studios and participate in this panel? And So now I'm going up there, and uh, never saw Vince through all of this. So now, fast forward uh, to this year, yeah, if I was taking Las Vegas odds on the likelihood, knowing the history, that uh, anything would ever happen in terms of recognition with the with the WWE, let alone Hall of Fame, I mean, just it just seemed like that was something that would. I mean, I would have said the same thing about Bret Hart after the, the episode that he had with Vince after the thing in Montreal, and even though he spit in Vince's face and punched him in the eye backstage. They eventually got together and did business again. So uh, the odds might have been greater in that situation. I don't know. I've said it before, Mr. Dillon, I've said it a thousand times. If anyone, anyone in the business deserves to be in that Hall of Fame, it's the Four Horsemen. What's amazing here is here's Flair, who's the first to be inducted twice in the Hall of Fame. That's a first. And the fact that at the time he was under contract to a competing organization, that would have been something that would have been unheard of uh, uh, not that many years ago. And then here's Barry Windham, who's now the son of a Hall of Famer. There were so many unique things, so many firsts uh, about that night and, and, you know, with the horsemen. And, yes, it's almost 25 years later, but it's just, hard to explain and then as if that wasn't special enough the next day and I hadn't been to a Wrestlemania in 16 years and I went to to the Sun Life Stadium and after the the Hell in a Cell match they had a thing as part of the of the Wrestlemania pay-per-view where they again Howard Finkel announced the inductees for that year and they're showing some video stuff and then all of a sudden uh all of us came out and were across the stage, and now you're you're looking at 78,000 people in this jam-packed stadium. And of course, you know it's all of us, not just the horsemen. I mean, there's Edge out there, and there was Ron Simmons and and Emil Moscaris and the the family of Yokozuna and Iron Mike Tyson. But still, the high the night before was one thing, and here is a high the, uh, of a different kind. If I look at that weekend, the whole weekend was surreal, and if I had a magic wand and could could wish, well, I wish this, I wish this, I wish this. And, you know, the comments of the current stars, Stone Cold Steve Austin said something about me as a manager. Where, what kind of, who, you know, to get that kind of star power as a, as a testimonial to the package that they're put together before you're introduced and then to be introduced in, in, in what is now the largest grossing wrestling event in professional wrestling history, that event at, uh, in Miami. And the next part was on a Monday. They're showing a one-hour special, which the whole Hall of Fame thing was like three hours in duration. And I think, well, you know, it would be nice because that's going out over the networks and going to be seen all over the world. And it ended up, it was the horseman, it was Tyson that you understand, and it was Edge that you understand, that that we got like 20 minutes of that show. So you talk about a magic wand and and being able to orchestrate a perfect weekend, 
I mean, I it probably was a week after I came home that I was still trying to process what an unbelievable experience that that, that had been. It had to have been possibly one of the greatest Hall of Fame ceremonies I've seen in my entire life. I've seen a whole bunch of them, and just just the, the outpour. You know, these were these are our young fans knowing who the Horsemen are, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again: the Horsemen are possibly the greatest, if not the greatest, the greatest, the greatest group to ever hit professional wrestling. And it only makes you wonder, what would have happened if the Four Horsemen had came to WWE during the late 80s and 90s? You don't know. And, and really, the, they did a nice job of what was actually about a 40-minute thing with all of our comments edited down, which wasn't even 20 minutes because there was you know, commercials in there and what have you. But uh, they just released the WrestleMania DVD set, and it's a two-disc set in the Blu-ray version. I looked on the back and it said total content time nine hours and it's the entire Wrestlemania event and disc number two is the entire Hall of Fame ceremony all three hours in high definition with all of our comments uh, I introduced my children Tully introduced his children Arn introduced I mean it, it and so here and it's of course their, their, their biggest selling DVD release every year and this one uh, who knows what what it's going to do if if the event itself was the largest grossing event in wrestling history. Uh, I have no idea how many people uh, are going to buy that thing or see it or look at it. And here is our ceremony in its entirety preserved on that disc. And I've already looked at it, and it's it's kind of like, you know, here it is preserved forever and ever, kind of like my life story or my book. Or this interview. Or this interview. Yeah. <laughs> You guys can get the WrestleMania 28 DVD, the either the three DVD pack normal or the two DVD pack Blu-ray available at many fine DVD retailers, including uh, Target, Fye, Sam's, Meyer, all those good areas. We, we may even have to give a copy away on the show just because the Hall of Fame is truly epic. It's not. There's no epic fail in this one. This is epic. It was the. It's the. It was. This was the best attended Hall of Fame. And again, again, it, it's hard to believe that that's been 20 years from when they first, you know, decided the concept when as a as a, a, a tribute to Andre the Giant after he passed away. And it started very modestly as just a, a small concert, uh, you know, conference room in the in the Marriott Marquis and downtown Manhattan and a few handful of people with tuxedos to induct people and now it's become a separate event and you got 78,000 people outdoors at that stadium on a, on a on a Sunday and the night before you know we're we're indoors in the arena that those people paid for a separate ticket just to come to be part of that experience and i mean it's you know from a marketing standpoint, it's a, a you know a win-win situation. It's a wonderful thing for us as people who you know are in the business to get that recognition. And on the other side, you know they're they're making money off it too. Uh, just the fact that the people and their their fan access thing that and I never even got over there to see that, but they said over at the Miami beach convention center was full with all the autograph sessions and memorabilia that they've had they have fine-tuned wrestlemania to and and 
we went over earlier that day for a little bit of a walkthrough thing, and there was some, you know, they, they do everything to go through it uh, in, in preparation. And there's a couple of cameramen there, and somebody said to him, you know, what's this like? You know, you work everything that comes through here. I would assume they say, oh yes, everything that comes to town. You know, we, you know, we, you know, we, we shoot it. And they said, I'll tell you this. They said we, we've done a, all the Super Bowls, and the Super Bowl is really a 20-minute concert in the middle of a football game. And for that 20 minutes, you know, it's you know pretty exciting. But they said tonight will be a non-stop three-hour entertainment spectacular. And nothing in the entertainment world compares to it. And they were right. It was, you know, it just, I mean, starting from the, you know, uh, the girl that uh, that sings, you know, uh, America Beautiful. She, oh, God, what a beautiful voice she has, uh, Garcia. And then the flyover with the two jets. And I I was looking and, all, and was standing what was outside the, the Marlins dugout behind the bleachers and and I could see the screens above and I could hear her you know singing and they had all the the soldier with flags across the stage and it was you know very and and I there was a national guardsman there and I said where's the flyover where we're going to not want to miss it where they oh they wouldn't have that here oh okay and I had heard there was going to be and I just happened to be look looking up and here come these two jets where their afterburners going, and they look low, low to me. And you can see on the on the DVD, you know, they actually have a shot. But I saw the jets right as, and and just that fast, they're gone. And the noise as they went out of sight was boom, 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 and it was so loud, I physically ducked, and I felt stupid because I actually saw the jets, saw them pass by. What am I ducking from? But the noise is that great when you're on the ground under them, and it just it's just the whole event. And they built a year for The Rock and Cena. How do you have a match that you build up for a year, and how do you live up to that hype? And then they did. And then the Hell in a Cell match with The Undertaker and Triple H with Shawn Michaels, to me, stole the show. And, and Tully and I watched it, and... Our comment was the same, that we have watched throughout our careers some memorable matches and been involved in a lot of them. And both of us felt that that night, that match, might have been the best, greatest match we'd ever seen. Well, yeah, I mean, Chris Chris has been, to, has been to several WrestleMania himself, haven't you, Chris? Yes. Yes, I have. There, that like I said, like a, you, your one question was always, "What's it like?" I mean, I'm I'm just there as a fan, and it's a spectacle. So I can only imagine, you know, reaching that point, not only knowing that you're there, but knowing that this is, you know, you're going to get your moment out there of, hey, here they are, here are our Hall of Famers. Yeah, and to have your, you know, your your family there to share that moment, uh, it, it it doesn't get any better. It just and like I said, three of my children came into the world after I had retired from the ring. And, you know, they would hear me do interviews. And my son's sitting here with me now because school just ended. And uh, he's sitting here, and he's heard me do I don't know how many interviews over the phone. And, you know, and he's watched some things on YouTube and what have you. But to actually be there and to see the, I guess, validation, for lack of a better word, of, 
what you did for so much of your adult life and and here's you know the stars of today and the stars of yesterday and, and just you know validating what 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 you accomplished and getting that recognition and you know there are people that say well you know it's you know you know looking at the hall of fame and how it's come about and, and what it really is and but to the average wrestling fan that is the hall of fame in their eyes and whether it ever becomes a, a, a brick and mortar building and there is another professional wrestling hall of fame up in Amsterdam, New York that I strongly support and I'm not there yet and I I I've been going to their their ceremony the last uh, 7 years and this was I think the 11th year this year and I'm on the board of directors and there is a process much like the baseball hall of fame for people that get uh, uh they get elected Jim Cornette went one in this year and and he rightfully deserves to be there but and so you could look at the the process of Bruno Sammartino came this year 10 years after he was inducted to actually get his ring and so that's very emotional but you know it's it's apples and oranges but it how how do you put into words you know what i experienced in miami and and it just to to I, I'm there aren't very many times in my life that I'm at a loss for words, and with this one I, I kind of am. It just yeah, and you if you look at the list of names of people, and you, you know you look say well you know and this you know and you can say the thing about baseball hall of fame you know there's people that well well the question well, how this guy got here because somebody had lobbied for him or whatever, but you know the when your name is being mentioned on the same list with gorgeous George. You know, with with Hulk Hogan, with all the legends from the past, Andre the Giant, and your name is being mentioned in the same sentence with these people. That's very humbling. Well, Mr. Dillon, uh, you said you were on the board of directors for the Hall of Fame. Boy, have we got a we got a recommendation for you. Now we come from Norwood, Ohio, and from Norwood, Ohio, was a wrestler that we feel. Really, 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 really deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Chris, why don't you take over from here? Well, you can get off your knees for begging now. And, uh, I mean, I think Denny would like, uh, we would like to plug just that, uh, you know, if you could ever, uh, mention Brian Pillman. Oh, wow. In a sentence, you know, we'd, uh, yes. we'd appreciate it. Yes, Brian Pillman was a Norwood born native. He, he got a start, you know, in the Cincinnati Bengals. He had, he had a small run there, then he went over to WCW and tag-teamed with Steve Austin and made the Hollywood Blondes a very popular tag-team. And then, of course, came over to the WWE, where he would become the loose cannon Brian Billman, and uh, even had the infamous Brian's Got a Gun segment. Just, just saying, you know, uh, grew up in the house right next to my uh, my grandma and my, my father, you know? Again, you know, you, we talk about the horsemen being ahead of times and, and being innovators and paving the way for other people. Uh, Brian Pillman was an innovator. He was ahead of his time too, and uh, tragic that uh, you know that we lost him, you know when we did. But I had a chance to to uh, to be around to to be around Brian and uh, and and to get to know him and uh, you know saw him with what he went through, you know, uh, with his accident. It, he just, he was a great guy. He really really was, and. Uh, Certainly worthy of uh, uh, what's happening because the the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame is this was only their 11th induction. They're they're now uh, 
you know, little by little, because each year they only bring two from one year, one tag team, what have you. So there's a lot of worthy people um, that are just now getting the recognition that, you know, they had to wait their turn kind of thing. And so, uh, you know, the, the worthy, I look at it this way because of the legitimacy of the selection process, and you, you go on their website and see how how it's structured. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, the people that are the people that are worthy uh, in time will get there. Exactly. You know that, and that's the thing. You gotta you gotta take it as it comes, uh, and it'll get there. You know, uh, my two year old daughter, my daughter Cadence, she actually, I uh, I uh, I make her watch. You know, I don't I don't make her watch anymore. She watches now on her own. Uh, we sat and we watched the Hall of Fame when I got the WrestleMania disc, and uh, you know she knows all about it. And you know, hopefully one day I'll be able to explain to her, you know, that actually a famous professional wrestler, maybe by that time a Hall of Famer, Brian Pillman, just grew up right next to her great grandma. Yeah, went to went to the same high school that we went to. Got honored in the Athletic Hall of Fame at that school. Yeah, again a, a, a great former on the Bengals and, and a big wrestling icon. And uh, you know, maybe we'd like to. Uh, there is a legitimate process, but also there are people who, uh, you know, speak highly of certain people and feel that they're 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 worthy. That their voice creates awareness because there are so many people out there, and and the committee, there's a selection committee each year, and the committee changes from year to year, and the and the body of voters changes from year to year. So. It doesn't hurt to have people say, you know, that I think, you know, this individual or that individual is worthy of consideration. And uh, and over time, uh, uh, I think that attention, uh, you know, helped that, that creation of awareness uh, may speed up the processes. But if, if, you know, and if they're worthy of getting in, that, that will, uh, like I say, hopefully speed up the process. Well, maybe we can uh, get a little YouTube audience to help us up there. Maybe put a little, <laughs> little have reference there, help get Brad Tillman the whole thing. Maybe put a little, maybe uh, maybe got a little, uh, little incentives. Your way, Mister Dillon. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's just one of those things. Never, never did I ever think that I would sit here and talk to. One of the greatest managers of all time. Uh, you know, we're, we're we, we've certainly had. I've had a blast. Dennis, how about yourself? I've had a great time. But uh, Mr. Jerome, before we go, we've got one listener question that I have to ask. I don't know if you know this, but there's a guy out there named Matthew. He does this thing called Botchamania, and he's a good friend of mine. I told him about having you on the show. He told me he had to have one question asked, and here's his question. You are a effing legend, and my question is, with all you've done for professional wrestling, how can you remain so humble? Ah. You know, it just, because I was a fan and because, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who, and I have seen it, who get into the business and enjoy some success and... All of a sudden, well, I I I am where I am because, you know, I I'm really great, and I realized from the very beginning how lucky I was, and that how how much of it was yes hard work, perseverance, but a lot of it too, like I say, luck being the right place at the right time, and the people that helped me 
along the way, and I just never got wrapped up in how much of it was really was really me. And every interview that I've ever done, and, and this one included, that I I never hesitate to use the opportunity to thank the fans because without the fans, there would have been no J.J. Dillon, there would have been no Four Horsemen, there would have been no professional wrestling. The wrestling fans are the greatest fans in the world. They're the most loyal. When they like you, they let you know it, and when they don't like you, they let you know it too. And I realize that a great part of the success that I've enjoyed is uh, the fact that that the, the fans were the ones that really ultimately created it. And so for me personally, um, and maybe it's my makeup, my personality, uh, I'm just I'm very thankful. And if that translated translates into humility, then okay, maybe I, I am a hum, I am a humble guy. But uh, just thankful that I live where I live in this country. That that I could have a dream and chase the dream, and that so many steps enabled me to get where I am and it's kind of like the week after all of this in Miami being able to look back and say wow uh, you know I en- enjoyed a storybook career but Hall of Fame recognition it goes beyond that it, it transcends that it's something that you, you don't even dare to dream about something like that and to now that it, know that it actually happened and I got a nice letter in the mail uh, two weeks after from John Laurinaitis. And he, in the letter, thanked me for being there for my participation in that weekend. And then he said in the letter, he said, and, and you are, will now and forever be known as a Hall of Famer. Which, which is, which is the the stamp, the stamp on everything that you've done, um, you know, is the the, the Hall of Famer. Uh, I think, uh, you know, and and especially now, it seems like you know, wrestling is a secular passion. You're seeing more fans come out. There's more, uh, there's more ceremonies, but but nothing matches, you know, the Hall of Fame. You, yeah. you have friends. You know, and because have, of because of DVDs, because of. Uh, the, the various forms of media that didn't exist years ago, YouTube. I mean, those things that are out there. I, you know, one day somebody said to me, "Have you ever done a, a Google search for JJ Dillon and just see what comes up?" I didn't know. And and you go on there, and there was like, you know, two and a half million hits or something. And you know, and some of them are, are kind of remote, and there might be some duplication. But just the thought that there is all that out there that's there forever for consumption by anybody and everybody that has access to it. So, I mean, there's a whole generation of people who are being exposed, and, and there are a lot of people who are not enamored with the current product that that look at, at you know what we did 25 years ago and are entertained by it today and, and see the simplicity of what was going on that you – you know, you didn't need to be a rocket scientist. You didn't need uh, somebody to uh, to explain it to you step by step. That it was, it was just, it was just there for you to digest. 
and we took great pride in everything that we did. I mean, uh, Arn, and you heard it from Arn, and you heard it from from Tully at the Hall of Fame thing, and it was like, and you guys pointed it out earlier that uh, I think one of the things that made the Horseman unique was that everybody already had made their stamp on the business, and it just happened to be the chemistry among the the four or five with me that uh, was just a, a genuine enjoyment of the time together and uh, certainly in the beginning nobody could have ever realized how big it would become or that it would last as long as it did and we just had something that was very special and, and there was a, a maybe a subtle co- a competition among each of us that we weren't all in the same match every night and when guys would go out there there was that internal pride that said okay you go out there and you leave it all out there and it's okay follow that one and you know each each time the guy went out they set the bar a little bit higher and the fans with the passing of time knew that was the expectation when one or more of the horsemen are out there and when we're all out there in a war game together uh the expectation hit it hit its highest level and we went out there and it didn't matter if we were in a in a small town or if we were in a major arena, the same was the same work ethic. Uh it didn't matter. And that's what set Flair apart. He he went out there, there were no shortcuts, there were no okay, you know, the the house didn't do as well as everybody thought it would for whatever the reason, so we're not gonna go out and kill ourselves tonight. And that that wasn't even part of the thought process. So because of YouTube, because of uh, the DVDs, because of the 24-hour channel that the WWE has, uh, and that they they bought up all the footage, and there are people that say, oh, "I watched, I watched you on, you know, Georgia Championship Wrestling or Championship Wrestling from Florida or old tapes from the Carolinas." So there's whole new generations that are being exposed to what we did. That, uh, in the absence of that, we might have been a forgotten entity. I don't know. I mean, definitely, you know, YouTube and everything has it. You, you're, you're starting to see the the renaissance. People people aren't afraid to wear wrestling T-shirts anymore out in public. It used to be something that, you know, we went through a phase where people people tried to hide that they were wrestling fans. Now, uh, you know, because of WWE's global market and everything, uh, you have you have uh, people on the internet like uh, that uh, start their own businesses because of the wrestling business. Basically, you know, you have people like uh, my good friends at uh, YouCan'tTeamy.com. Who, uh, who, uh, you know, run wrestling shirts now because people aren't afraid to be wrestling fans anymore, which I think is the greatest thing. I mean, I've never been afraid to be a wrestling fan, but uh, there. And it's like uh, you know, Loki said uh, the first time he went to Japan. You, you know, it, that was the, the the sentiment. And then you look at old black and white from years and years ago, and you look at the audience. You'll see people. Most of the men are wearing a jacket and tie, and women are dressed up. Um, and it's at its highest level. Um, I always said that it did uh, two points. Johnny Valentine uh, was one of the first people that that drew me to the business. I just, you know, he took him a long while to get over. Once he got over, wow, he was something else. And he used to say, "I can't make believe people. I can't make people believe that wrestling is real, but I can convince them that I'm for real." And and he did, and he made you a believer. And, and uh, professional wrestling is an art form, and at its when it's performed at its absolute highest level, 
fans can have a preconceived notion of what they're going to watch. You know, a parent takes his kid because ah, my kid likes to watch it. I'm going to go too. And then the next thing you know, they're mostly involved and they're coming over the rail trying to get in the ring. And, and you know, who knows what they think when they go home that night at the end of the day. But performed at its highest level, it looks so real that it becomes real. And that's, uh, that's a great compliment when you can perform at that level that uh, that you bring that kind of emotion out of people. And that's what we attempted to do, and that's what we took great pride in accomplishing. Well, Mr. Dillon, all i got to say is, is thank you so much for being on the show. Guys, check out jjdillon.com. Check out his new book, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls, From McMahon to McMahon. Check him out in Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen, which you can get at www.shop.com, along with the WrestleMania 28 DVD package, which includes the full unabridged Hall of Fame ceremony. This is stuff that you are not going to see anywhere else. And, Mr. Dillon, i got to say thank you so much for being on the show. This is truly a huge honor. And I hope that when the history's pages are written in the book of life the four horsemen will have a huge chapter well i i, I thank you guys the time is just uh you know just flown by and like i say I, you know you you've asked the good questions and dennis and chris i've really enjoyed uh, the time being with you and i appreciate having me on well folks we're going to be cutting out here right now this is the dennis daniel show until next time good night nature